0: Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst, and if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Welcome to a special edition of the Bridgeway Church Podcast. Um, This episode and the following one, we will be rebroadcasting a special event that we did here at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City last year. It was called the Arts Symposium, and the whole idea was to get members of our body together who were interested in learning more about how to use their art or how to interact with art in general, and um, we couched it around this phrase in Exodus when God is explaining um, the the tabernacle and how Aaron's robes should look, and he says that um, Aaron's robes should look this way for two reasons, for glory and beauty, and so that's what we called the conference, we called it for glory and beauty. And so today, you will actually be hearing my session that I taught on that very passage for glory and beauty uh, that I taught at the Arts Symposium, so we'll be rebroadcasting that here for you this week. And then next week, we're excited to be broadcasting the sermon that Sam Storms, our lead pastor, gave on his 10 observations on beauty. A lot of people don't know that he actually minored in his PhD. His minor concentration was on uh, aesthetics. And so um, he brought a really great word on that. But today we hope you uh, really enjoy uh, my lesson that I taught at the Art Symposium on the subject of For Glory and Beauty. Well, um, like I said, I'm going to be talking us through this text from which we get for glory and beauty. So this will probably be one of the most biblically technical um, parts of a day, which is great to do that first thing in the morning, right? I think that's a really good idea there. At least it's not right after lunch. Maybe that would be the worst part to do it. But I'm really excited because I love this text in Exodus 28, 2 through 3. If you brought your Bibles, you have them on your phone, why don't you go ahead and go to Exodus 28. Um, that's kind of be where I'm going to be camping out, and a lot of us are going to be pulling from here. And it's where we get our theme verse. So my, my career as a spoken word poet, uh, it began, goodness, about 12 years ago, I think. And I was, um, I was performing my very first like, set of poetry on the campus of Oklahoma Christian University here in town. And I was studying Bible and biblical languages there. And uh, I performed this like 45-minute set of poems. And it took everything I could to remember all of them. And um, there was only about 50 people there, and I, I I finished my set, and I'm saying thank you to my friends for coming. And a, a professor who's uh, from the school was also there, and I didn't see that he was there the whole time. And he comes up to me, and it turns out that he runs a conference. And he says, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. Would you consider ha- letting me commission you to write a poem for this conference that I run, and I want you to write it on the Lord's Supper? And I was like, wait, wait, wait. By commission, do you mean that you will give me actual money to write <laughs> words? And he was like, yeah, and I was like, yes, I am there. Come to find out though, it's for 18,000 students, and I had never before been commissioned or been paid to do anything, and so I went from doing this at like, the, the Paseo Arts District here in town, or on my campus to 18,000 kids, and I was a complete nervous wreck. And, uh, and that's what started my career the commissioning of my art. And this is a very important thing in the history of the church because the church used to commission a lot of art. Uh, I mean, some, some of our our most renowned artworks were, were created by the church commissioning artists. I mean, you can think about Michelangelo's work on the Sistine Chapel, right, or Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. The, the church's financial support and, and the scripture's wealth of, of material have provided... Uh, and and been the driving force behind some of the world's most immaculate achievements in the arts. But the church was not the first commissioner of holy art. The tradition of skilled workers hired by holy hands finds its start in God himself. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Because in the book of Exodus, the, the, the people of Israel have left Egypt, they've been freed from Egypt, They've passed through this wilderness area, and and they've arrived at Mount Sinai where they meet with God, and Moses goes up into the mountain and and, and talks with God. And it's here that God gives them this plan, this detailed blueprint for what's called the tabernacle, which is a precursor for the temple where God's special presence would reside and where sacrifices would be offered and, and, and where the center of Israel's religious life would dwell. And God sets himself up in giving this blueprint as architect, interior decorator, furniture designer, tailor, carpenter, weaver, and chiefly, art commissioner. God thoroughly outlines how he wants this tabernacle to look. And it's in this context that we come across this verse in Exodus 28, verses 2 and 3. If you want to read it uh, with me uh, on your outline or in your Bible, it says this. I'm reading from the ESV. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So, we're going to talk about two parts of this text today. We're going to talk first about this statement, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, and we're going to see God as commissioner of the arts. And then we're going to look at another statement for glory and beauty, and we're going to see God as collaborator with the arts. And so we're going to see these two different aspects of God in these verses. So let's start with God as commissioner. It has to be said right at the outset here that God cares deeply about beauty, physical beauty, created beauty, artistic beauty. God is deeply concerned about that, which might take a lot of us Protestants, if if you're a Protestant in the room, by surprise. Because we don't really give a lot of focus to religious artistic beauty a lot of the times. But it doesn't take much more than a cursory reading of God's description of the tabernacle to see how deeply concerned he is about the arts. Let's look at some of these. Exodus 26.1. You shall make the tabernacle with tin curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Exodus 26.37. You shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia, not just wood, acacia, and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them, Exodus 30, three through four. You shall overlay the altar with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. You shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it. And then this one I love so much, Exodus 30, 22 to 25. Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much. That is 250. Thanks, God, for doing math for us. And 250 of aromatic cane and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make these as a sacred anointing oil, blended as by a perfumer." God's like stepping into the smellscape arena here now. It's amazing. God gave specific directions regarding shapes, materials, images, dimensions, and even smells in the construction of this tabernacle. He was intimately involved in the artistic beauty of the tabernacle as only a true lover of the arts could be. But honestly, we don't even have to look at the construction of the tabernacle to see that God is deeply concerned and involved in beauty. We just have to look at the world, right? You look at, we look at the world and we're blown away by the beauty that just covers it. And that's what we see at the beginning of time. When God created the world, there's this, there's this artistry that went in to everything that God made. There's an order and an exactness and an aesthetic that kind of permeates the Genesis 1 narrative of creation. And beyond that, we don't just see God as creator of all that is beautiful. We see God as commissioner. Here. just as we do in the tabernacle, we see it in the Garden of Eden. So let's step back in the Garden of Eden, and I want to walk you through just really quickly these four steps that God took with Adam to commission him in the Garden. So first, we have, the, we have uh, we, well, even before this, at the very outset of all time, right, we have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters at the very beginning of Genesis. And water here doesn't mean ocean, it doesn't mean liquid, it doesn't mean that deep blue stuff. What it means is chaos. It's this Hebrew word tovu vavohu, which just sounds chaotic, doesn't it? And, uh, and it's, this, it's this chaoticness that God is hovering over. And what we see him do is he brings order out of chaos through his spirit, which is a very important thing that gets picked up in Exodus. So what we see is first... Through the power of God's word, God created all the resources of this world that Adam and Eve would then cultivate, and he created them out of nothing. He created them out of absolutely nothing. There was nothing that existed except God himself, and he brought all the resources into creation out of nothing. Second, God formed man out of the dust of the ground and then breathed his spirit into them. This is the spirit that was hovering over the face of the waters and over the chaos of, now you can say, the dirt, out of the formlessness of the dirt, and he breathes his spirit into it and creates a living being. Thirdly, God commissioned Adam to work and keep the garden. This is God's commissioning of man, to work and keep the garden. God put man in the garden to work it and keep it. A garden has to be cultivated, right, in order to thrive. There needs to be an order and a design and a strategy of care in order for a garden to thrive. And Adam was commissioned by God to be an artist of the garden. And then finally, Adam set about his commissioned work. And we see the exact same pattern happening in the tabernacle. I want to show this to you. So this I love. So the first step in creation was God creating everything out of nothing. And we see something very similar happening in the first step of the creation and commissioning of the tabernacle. Look at this. So God called for all the resources he would need for the tabernacle. Uh, we, we read about this here in Exodus 25, 2-7. Let me read it for us. God says to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen. Goat's hair. All right. Tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Here's what God wants. He's saying, all right, I'm taking up a, a tithe, right? It's like this is, the, this is the giving sermon that happens on Sunday mornings, right? God's like, all right, guys, we're going to give today. And people start bringing all these things to the contribution for the tabernacle. But here's why I say this is really interesting. God does this basically like he did in Genesis because he brings something, everything needed to create, basically out of nothing. Because if you think about it, all of these Israelites were just enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. So where were they getting all of this gold and all of this, these onyx stones, these precious metals, like these fine fabrics? I don't think these are things that subjugated slaves just have lying around their mansions. You know, that doesn't make sense. So where did they get all this stuff? Well, God gave it to them. (laughs) It's really an amazing story. God said, God commanded Moses to tell the people that as they were leaving and fleeing Egypt, that they were to ask the Egyptians for their goods. (laughs) And God would move on the hearts of the Egyptians and cause them to give them their finest things. Here it is in Exodus 12, 35 through 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have whatever they asked for. And I love this statement. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. You ever see someone plunder another civilization just by going up and cordially asking for their gold? It's like, yeah, can can I have all your nice stuff? Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. No problem. You know, Just as God brought everything needed for creation out of nothing, God brought everything needed for the creation of his tabernacle out of nothing. He provided the resources. And this might just seem like I'm trying to create some kind of cool literary comparison. I promise there is a deep and important point here, and it is this, that commissioners pay for the art they commission. Right? That's the point of commission. Someone came to me and they said, hey, I want to pay you to write a poem. I want to provide the resources necessary for you to do that. God did the same thing. I want you to build me a tabernacle. Okay, God, where do, I, where do I get the stuff? He's like, no, 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 here it is. I've put it in your hands already. God provided the resources just like he did in the garden. He provides everything necessary for art to exist. Secondly, uh, this is, this is, so we've compared how God created everything out of nothing, and now we're going to look at um, God giving a specific plan To the people just like he gave a specific plan to Adam and Eve. God gave a specific plan for the construction of his tabernacle. And in order to show us that he's recapitulating what happened in Eden, he does so with specific garden images throughout the tabernacle. So uh, first you can see that the tabernacle is a recapitulation of what happened in Eden by the fact that it's now the unique place of God's presence. That's what the garden was. That's where God dwelt with man and now he's going to dwell in the temple. Second, the priests were charged to work and keep the tabernacle. It's the same Hebrew words that would be repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament, commanding the priest to work and keep the tabernacle as God used to command Adam to work and keep the garden. It's happening again. The lampstand that stood outside the Holy of Holies most likely, scholars think, represents the tree of life with all its like almond branches and flowers and all these things. It's supposed to represent the tree of life. And lastly, this one's really cool. You know, like when... Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, what was blocking their way from entering back in? A cherubim with a flaming sword, right? And that is what's sown into all of these curtains and barriers all over the tabernacle. Skillfully worked cherubim, guarding the way into the Holy of Holies. God is intentionally communicating that he is continuing what he started in the garden. Thirdly, just as God filled Adam with his spirit out of the dust of the ground to form in, into a living being, we see here that God fills his workers with a spirit of skill in order that they might do what God has commissioned them to do. Uh, I, I'm just going to read you a little bit uh, kind of list-wise. I, I, I went through all this section and, and pulled out all the parts where the spirit of skill is mentioned. And so we have women uh, are filled with the skill to spin goat's hair. Is anyone anointed with that, with that gifting? No. Okay. Well, never mind. I don't get a cool coat. I was hoping to get someone to make me a goat skin coat, but uh, others were filled with the ability uh, to be engravers, designers, embroiderers, weavers, workmen, perfumers, metalworkers, woodcarvers, and more. Like, and I've just pulled these straight from the text. These are things that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, enabled people to do. We don't really think of the Spirit doing that so, so, so often. I, I think that's amazing. And then you have this one specific man who's. Bezalel, great name. I encourage you, if if any of you are pregnant, name your child Bezalel. Uh, It was said of him, and I quote here, that God filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. The Spirit of God provided the skills necessary for them to do these artistic tasks. Really amazing. And what's very cool is the Spirit of God didn't just move on the hearts of artists. The Spirit of God also moved on the hearts of the like the contributors, the people who brought the gold and the stones and the linen cloths. God's, God's Spirit moved on them too. Uh, Exodus 35.21 says that. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And then lastly, just as Adam went about the work that God commissioned him through the power of the spirit that God put in him, so do the people build the tabernacle. So before we leave this idea as God as commissioner, I want to point out two things to probably two different groups of people in this room. The first will be to the artist's. And the second will be to those who don't necessarily consider themselves as artists. So first, there's two ways God commissions. The first is God commissions through skill. God commissions people by giving them artistic skills. That's how he commissions you. The commission is implicit in the gift. The very fact that he gave it to you is your commissioning. You might be waiting to be like, all right, just God asked me to use my gift. (laughs) He's like, no, I gave it to you. That's my commission. It would be like us going to a restaurant together. We walk up to like a fast food counter and I place my order, you place your order, and then I give you money and walk away. Right? I've given you a gift and what I want you to do is implicit in what I've given you, right? I want you to pay for the food, right? I don't have to go, "Okay, now that money is strictly for paying for the food," right? You you know what I'm asking you to do. It's as if we were in a room full of uh, like flies and I hand you a fly swatter. I don't have to go, "Okay, now I've given you this fly swatter for the express purpose of swatting flies." Like no, you don't have to be told what it means, right? It's like if we're building a house and I go through all this time teaching you how to hammer nails, then I give you a hammer and walk away, you don't have to go, man, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, you know the commission is implicit in the gift, and that's what God is doing here in his giving of gifts. Artistic skill is a gift from God, and in the granting of that gift, the commissioning is given simultaneously, Of course, it's really important for us to realize this so that we can give God credit for the things that he's given us and these amazing gifts. But this realization is also important because it points to the high calling that God places on the arts. The fact that God values the arts is also implicit in the fact that he gave us artistic abilities. And listen to this. God commissions when he gives. That's the point we're making, that God commissions when he gives, and he values what he commissions. God commissions what he gives and he values what he commissions. If you have an artistic skill then, guys, I pray that God's spirit would stir you up to use it, that that you would bring that gift back to him and say, God, what would you have me do with what you have entrusted me in this skill? God does not give talents so that they might be wasted or go unused. If you have ability, the Lord requires it of you. I invite you to use it, to sharpen it, to bring it to the tent and see what he would have you do with it. And this leads to one final observation, for those commissioned by the granting of a skill. You might you might notice that um, throughout this whole uh, tabernacle building scenario, there's some like basic skills that aren't listed that we might expect to see here, right? Like we don't see musical instruments and and worship leaders and orators, preachers, public prayer leaders. We don't see them. We see like stone engravers and like woodworkers like so many of you probably have skills that you feel like the church has traditionally disregarded or said that's a that's a secular skill that's not a holy skill like yes you can go use that for the world and out there in the public commerce sector but not here we don't have we don't have a place for you here and i want to tell you just because the church has disregarded your art skill does not mean god has disregarded it or did not give it to you All skill is from the Lord, and his spirit has moved on you to give you that specific skill. Even if the church has disregarded it, God requires it of you. And I say present it to his church. Bring it to the tent. Bring it to your community and see what God would have you do. People will be blessed by the making of beauty, and God will be glorified. So that is what I believe this vision of God as commissioner says to the artist. Secondly, the second way God commissions is through stewardship. So God commissions through skill, and God commissions through stewardship. Not everyone involved in the construction of the tabernacle was an artist. Those mentioned first were not artists at all, in fact. They were givers. God had entrusted resources to individuals and families and then stirred their hearts up with his spirit for the purposes of supporting the arts. If you're not artistic, you might be called upon to support the arts. I mean, this goes back to how I got my start, right, my, my whole career, my ability uh, and the freedom I had to, to explore all this goes back to someone commissioning me. Commissioned artwork is so important. Maybe God uh, is stirring you to support an artist you know, you know. Uh, some of the ways you can do that is if, if there's an artist you know, ask them, is there a project that you're working on that you really need help completing? Or if you're thinking about putting up a painting in your house, don't go to an arts and crafts store. Don't go to Walmart or Target to buy a $20 painting, right? Commission a local artist. We have several in this room who would love to paint you a painting. I I guarantee that. Lynn, Lynn, just ask Lynn. She'll paint you a night sky. That's what she's on right now. She's all about the night skies right now. So, you know, just ask Lynn and she'll do that for you. It'll be great. Uh, If you need a new dining room table, you don't need to go to a furniture store. Find a Christian Carpenter, <laughs> ask them to build you a table. It'll be gorgeous and it'll last a lifetime, and it'll support their, their artwork. There are strategic, creative ways to commission artists around you. And then another way to commission artists is through community efforts, right? You can set up an endowment through your church or school. Endowment's a big, fancy word, really. You could just say, hey, uh, here's $1,000, here's $500, here's $100 to your church. When there's an artist, when there's a piece of art you guys want to create, I'd like to pay for it. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Okay. You can uh, start a nonprofit that funds budding artists or to create capstone projects. You can give to the arts at your church or through a local arts charity or a museum. If God has entrusted you with resources, He may call upon you to steward those resources for the arts. So there we have God as commissioner. Second, and lastly, I want us to look at God as collaborator. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I were. In Washington, D.C., we went on a little one-week vacation. We split our time between D.C. and New York. And uh, if you know anything about D.C. and New York, it's, they're both full of museums. So that's what we did. We, we looked at all the museums, and we ate all the food. That's what we did. It was great. Uh, and so on our last day in D.C., I mean, we had been hitting up all the Smithsonian hotspots. We went to the Museum of Natural History. And immediately after we walked in, we were, like, so overwhelmed. There's, like, there's no way we have the time or the mental fortitude <laughs> to look at everything in this building like we had been previously at all the other museums. So we decided to take a completely different approach with this museum. We were just going to bolt through every um, like interesting exhibit that we wanted. And so we, we start going through all the ones. We look at all the taxidermied hippos and lions, and we look at like the skulls of alleged Neanderthals, and we look at weird bony deep sea fish things with I don't know, what, what's, that, what's that one fish that has the glowing thing hanging off of its head? That guy's fun. The angler. Nailed it. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, so we're blazing through all of these different exhibits. Then we get to this gemstone exhibit, these minerals, right? So they're, they're, it's this insane, I mean, it's, it had to have been ten rooms, ten rooms of gems, and minerals. Uh, they had they had everything from amethysts and emeralds to jades and diamonds, citrines and moonstones. They had the famous Hope Diamond there. And I I was ready to blaze through this thing. I was kind of over it. But my wife Megan, she had to stop at every case, press her face up to the glass and just ogle over the shiny rocks. And after a while, I was like I, I was like I just don't get it. Like I'm just kind of missing the point here. And so we're we're kind of we're kind of speculating, like, how much do you think all these are worth? And we're like, it has to be like millions of dollars. All these diamonds and everything are worth. And, and I just make this like, just, like, I'm a cynic and like, oh, why does man value these things? Like, I'm like all like uppity about it. And Megan, my my brilliant wife, she just goes, it's because they're so pretty. But she nailed it. Like, that's exactly why they're valuable. Like, they 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 don't actually serve of functional purpose. They have inherent beauty. That's why they're valuable. Like you can't you can't use them as a tool really. Like they don't form shelter, you can't eat them, they can't keep you warm, but they have high value because they are intrinsically beautiful. The gem's beauty makes us feel something and points us to something bigger, more meaningful, and more beautiful. And that is what is happening in Exodus 28 when God describes Aaron's robes, the high priest's robes. Aaron was to serve as the high priest in God's new tabernacle. God would dwell in the tent, and Aaron would be chief among those who would minister to the Lord and offer sacrifices. And Aaron's robes, what he wore, were to be the height of decorum as he goes into this place. It was supposed to be a spectacle. You know, There would be gold and purple and scarlet threads of finest twined linen, engraved onyx stones like the ones I saw at the Smithsonian. You know, they were supposed to be enshrined in gold and set on his shoulder pieces. I, I don't even wear shoulder pieces. He had gold onyx shoulder pieces. Chains of gold were, were to be fastened into cords that would run between the different jeweled settings. And all of this is just for one piece, this piece called the ephod. And that's not even to mention the detailed descriptions that God goes into concerning his breastpiece and his robe and his turban, along with sashes, coats, and caps. It's insane what this guy was wearing. And, and as I was reading this and trying to picture what this would have looked like, I had one thought. I was like, what would these former slaves think about all this opulence? I was so curious about that. Because it was common knowledge to them that priests wear robes. They knew that. They, 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 had been, they spent 400 years in Egypt who had a robust religion. They had huge religious cults, lots of well-formed religious ideas. Uh, we, we see that just a few chapters later in, in chapter 32 when they want to give credit to some god for their deliverance. What do they do? They melt down all their gold and form a golden calf. They, you know, and, and that is some remnant of the idol worship that they picked up from Egypt. And so in these temples of the gods that were in Egypt, they had priests too. The Israelites were familiar with priests, and those priests wore robes. And so I, I had to research and figure out, okay, what do these robes look like? Like, what, were they just as insane? Like, did they have all these different pieces too? And I was surprised to find out, no, quite the opposite, actually. Egyptian priests wore the most basic of clothing, plain white linen robes is all they would wear. No jewelry, no colored thread. Not fine Egyptian cotton or anything like that, you know, that you make your sheets out of, nothing like that. No. Just just plain, basic, almost peasant clothing is what they would wear. This was to represent their ritual purity before the gods. Now, this is not because the Egyptians had no idea how to dress opulently. That's not true at all. The the kings and the nobility class, they wore all the jewelry and all the fine linens and all this thing, but not the priests. So imagine if you're coming out of this culture. And you're saying, oh, yeah, that's all false religion, and we have this one true God. You might be asking, like, why, why are the priestly robes so ornate? Like, why is God wanting this, uh, the priests to look like this? What is the purpose of using all this gold and all, all these gems and all our, our finest linen? They, uh, they, they might have sounded like me whenever I was at the Smithsonian with my wife. You know, I just don't get it. What's the point of all of these sparkly things? And it's no wonder then that God gives the answer that is forming our framing for this uh, whole event. And God said, here's the reason why I want my priest to dress this way. It's for glory and beauty. Now this phrase we have to unpack just a bit because it gets a little confusing as we start to compare it with other modern translations. So depending on what translation you have, it seems like the text might be communicating something completely different from this idea of for glory and and beauty, which I just read. And even the way the ESV puts it is a little ambiguous. It says this, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Now, this rendering raises a few questions about the subject of these two words, right? Is the glory tied to Aaron and his robes, or is the, glory, is the beauty that he is wearing supposed to point us to the glory of God? Like, who's the subject of glory and beauty? Is it for God's glory and beauty, or is it for Aaron's glory and beauty, for the priesthood's glory and beauty? The NIV just goes ahead and makes the decision outright by adding the word give into the text, which isn't actually in the Hebrew. It says it like this, make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor or glory and beauty. So what's really going on here? Is is there to be some innate glory given to the priestly robes through their beauty, or is the beauty of the robes meant to lead people to glorify God? Here's the deal. Trying to separate these two actually misses the whole point God is trying to make in this instance of the robes. Completely misses it. It is in the combination of the robes' beauty and God's beauty that reveals what God is doing. It is both the elaborate glory wrapping up the priests and the elaborate glory that has always and constantly wraps up God that shows the unique situation God is trying to create through the arts and through beauty here at the tabernacle. Why should Yahweh's priests be commanded to dress in such ornately designed robes while the priests in Egypt dress in such simple white linen? The answer is actually very simple because God invites his people into his glory and beauty. God does not just keep all the glory for himself, all the beauty for himself. Neither does he want to cultivate beauty by himself. He is a collaborative God. He invites us into his glory and his beauty. His ultimate glory, his ultimate fame, his ultimate worth will be shared with no one. But he invites us to enter it, to enjoy it, to be even endowed by it, in a sense, through Jesus Christ. And we will see how this applies to the arts, but I have to stop right here for a minute and show you what the ultimate purpose of these robes are, because these priestly robes find their final and ultimate fulfillment in the completed work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteousness is the fulfillment of the most ornately priestly robes with which all Christians are clothed. We are endowed with his glory and his beauty, because he went into the most holy place where Aaron was supposed to go, right? By the price of his own blood, not the price of a goat or a ram, The price of his own blood he entered in, and now he clothes God's people with his glory and his beauty, his righteousness. And this is the most unfathomable way in which God partners with his people through Jesus Christ. This is the collaborative spirit of God that has been on display since the beginning. So, briefly, let me go back to the garden here, because we have to see God as an artistic collaborator from the very beginning We've already kind of seen how the garden connects to the temple through all the temple imagery, how it relates to the garden, but there's one little nugget I want to pull out specifically, and that nugget is found in this phrase, to work it and to keep it. This is the first commission that God gave Adam to tend the garden, and I give you some verse listings there to see how this same command was given to the priests that worked the tabernacle throughout the rest of Israel's history. And that is because there is a mission that God had in the garden. God was, in, God was trying to accomplish something when he founded Eden. And he wanted to continue that work in the tabernacle. And the mission that he was trying to accomplish in Eden is a very simple one. As Adam and Eve worked the garden and kept the garden, the idea is that it would spread. Because, you know, a healthy garden grows and it moves and it's cultivated. What was relegated to a part of of the world w- w- was to take over the world and to flourish and it would have pushed the boundaries of Eden around the globe and and since it, it, the point of this mission wasn't to build a big garden it wasn't because god just really wanted a big glorious garden like some king from austria would want and you know behind their palace the point was that eden was the special place of god's presence and as the as eden grew around the globe god's presence would fill the earth and And his other command was that Adam and Eve would multiply. So there was supposed to be this Edenic filling of the world populated by human beings dwelling with God. That's his plan. He wants to live with us, create alongside of us, that we might worship him. That was the original Eden plan. But as we know, the fall and sin disrupted this plan. And so the tabernacle is God picking up that plan again. That is why there's so much garden imagery in the temple. Uh, because the, the tabernacle is an extension of God's Edenic mission. The, the tabernacle was, on purpose, a tent. It had tent pegs. That way those pegs could be lifted up, moved to another area of the world. The people could meet the God of Israel. They could be transformed by his glory and beauty testimate, uh, as, as through the testimony of the art of the tabernacle. And God's presence and that Edenic mission would fill the world. And they would be a blessing to all people, which God originally promised to the children of Abraham. And so that was how God was going to partner with man to cultivate the world in his image. And so now we're back to our original text and our original question. What does God mean when he said that Aaron's robes were for glory and beauty? He means this, that through the artistry of the skilled craftsmen, people may see the good news that God is bringing his glory upon men and opening a way back into his presence through sacrifice. I'm going to read that again. He means this, through glory and beauty means this, that God, that through the artistry of the skilled craftsmen, people may see the good news that God is bringing his glory upon men and opening a way back into his presence through sacrifice. The glory that was represented in Aaron's robe was, was symbolic of the glory that God was wanting to rest on all his people. It was also symbolic of the glorious work in which the priests were involved, which is the atoning for sins, which would ultimately be satisfied and completed in Jesus Christ. Whereas the priests in Egypt dressed simply before the gods, while the royals dressed in the finest beautiful robes and jewels, Yahweh's priests dressed in beauty in order to express a unique truth. And that unique truth is that God desires to display his glory to us and make us beautiful like him. God wants to restore his image in us so that we might dwell with him as, he, as his plan originally intended. And that's the amazing thing about the story of the tabernacle is that God used art to demonstrate this plan. So now in closing, I'd like to just do a really quick cursory overview of four ways the tabernacle reflected, the, um, reflected this original plan reflects who God is and how we might learn as artists how to carry out that plan. First, as we've already seen, the, t- the tabernacle reflected the garden. Uh, we- we've seen that man is collaborating with God in this covenant of care is what it's called. When-, when God commissioned Adam to take care of the garden, this is called the covenant of care. And when we get to the tabernacle, we see these echoes of Genesis 1 and 2, and that's to alert us that these skilled craftsmen that Moses employed to work on the tabernacle are to be seen as new garden laborers reengaging in the covenant of Of care, So that means that we too, as Christians, as as those made in God's image, we too are co-creators with God. Through art, we are invited into this covenant of care. We are invited back into the garden to have dominion and shape the world and form beauty to the glory of God. Art takes the raw material of the world, just like Adam and Eve did, and reshapes it into something beautiful to the eyes of man that they might glory in God, who is the source of all beauty. Art, for God's sake, is not something the artist creates outside themselves, or outside of God, I mean, and then brings it to God as a present. Art, the artist creates alongside God, forming the chaos of the world into the beauty of God's original design. Artists are gardeners. They take what God has made and work alongside him to create beauty. Second, the tabernacle reflected the cosmos, the universe. You see, the tabernacle was a vision of the whole universe, the the earthly tabernacle and the temple that would come after it are an image of God's eternal dwelling place, his ultimate heaven. So the goal of the tabernacle then was not to say this is a place that contains God, but to say just the opposite, that the whole universe can't even contain God. The temple was a cosmic temple, and so God had them use art to reflect this idea. There's these three layers in the tabernacle that is supposed to represent the three layers of the heavens that were in the Jewish mindset. The cosmic imagery uh, were woven into curtains and the priestly robes, and that was to be reflective of the majesty of the universe. So there's an irony, then, in God-glorifying art. It, It tries, in some sense, to contain God and say, here is one aspect of God's beauty. Yet, the artist's subject is beyond representation or encapsulation. Art is trying to capture something that is not able to be captured. But there is beauty in this artistic irony. I mean, don't we see that ourselves when we see a, a landscape painting, something that captures nature's beauty, while at the same time it leaves you with the impression that something went unsaid in that sunset, or those water lilies, or those rolling hills, something went unsaid. It expresses a piece and highlights a piece of its interpretation of, of the true form of beauty, and it brings it to the forefront and says, have you ever looked at water lilies like this? And you say, no, I haven't. But it doesn't capture the whole picture. So there's this artistic irony that we do when we try to put God's beauty in one thing, is what goes unsaid expresses just as much, if not more, as what goes said. And so art is uniquely positioned to bear witness to God through what it can and cannot say, express, capture, and display. Two more The tabernacle reflected God's will, and we've seen that, that God's will was to dwell with all people, to push the garden out, to lift the tent pegs of the tabernacle and cover the earth with his presence. And he would do that and communicate that to the world through art. And so we see that we should also be engaged in this. All types of art can be employed to show God's intention for renewal, dominion, and salvation. Even secular artists, unbeknownst to them probably, engage in this all the time. They create Beautiful portraits of idealized worlds that give one the impression that there's an even greater beauty out there behind what we can see. Worldly stories of redemption and innocence hearken to the deeper truth present within all humanity. So as Christians, we should use our artistry to display God's intention for the world. We can express God's will through art, which is an amazing blessing and responsibility. Finally, the tabernacle reflected God's character. The character of God is clearly revealed in the layout of the tabernacle. Through stratified levels and barriers and smoke and imageries and altars and all these different things, one gets the sense as they draw closer and closer to the holy of holies that they are approaching a holy, powerful, and just God. It expressed God's character. And God made sure that the artistry of the tabernacle reflected this, these attributes that he, held, that he holds. He wanted the tabernacle uh, art to tell a story about who he is, what he values, and what interaction with him looks like. So we too, as artists, we can engage in, in, in these displays of God's character, displays of his love, power, kindness, beauty, forgiveness, long-suffering, wrath, justice. Art should represent characteristics of God either right on the nose or by implication, And again, even secular artists have multiple times over done this without even trying. They've written books and directed movies and painted pictures that put these attributes on display in marvelous ways. So how much more should we as Christians engage in this task of revealing God's character to the world through our art? So in conclusion, we've seen that God is the commissioner of art, and he's also a collaborator with the arts. He acts in both so that he might show the world his glory and beauty by bestowing it upon man to cultivate it and even wear it like we do in Christ. He does this so that in the end, his own glory and beauty might be seen as they truly are, of unsurpassable value and worth. So may we join God's artistic work in allowing ourselves to be commissioned by God and collaborate with God. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchOKC. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.